coming. Thank you. All right, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. Um, did everybody wake up okay? Daylight savings didn't mess anybody up. Nobody got up extra early. I got up extra early because I have two kids, so I'm always up extra early, so it doesn't really matter. Um, why don't we go to God in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Today, we're going to take time and really dive into your word and study it and try to understand it and go all through your word. And we're just so thankful that you've given us this book, Lord, that gives us the instructions we need. It gives us the history we need to know. It gives us everything we need to know about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so I ask for those who are here today and those who may uh, not be here, but they might listen on line later. I just ask that you would open their hearts to really receive the message that you have for them prepared in your word. And I just ask that you would be with them, that they would feel your spirit in every single word. Father, I ask that you would be with me, that you would make my speech clear and concise so that those who are listening are able to hear it and take it in and understand it and apply it to their lives. And we thank you for your son, Jesus, and the sacrifice that he gave us. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. All right. So we're still in our fingerprints series where we are finding the fingerprints of Jesus all over the book of Genesis. Um, and today what I want to do, I want to look at the life of Abram um, and, and talk about the events of his life that point us to Christ. And I thought we'd do something a little bit different with Abram. Um, See, I was thinking about our, our fingerprints theme, and, and I was thinking about the way investigators usually find fingerprints on a crime scene. And usually they start with the end result and they work backwards rather than starting with the fingerprints to work forward, right? They show up at the scene of the crime um, and they try to piece things back together. So what I want to do a little bit different today is I want to start in the New Testament passage, and then I want us to trace our way back through the scripture until we get back to Genesis in order to find these fingerprints. And so the passage I want us to start with today is in Hebrews chapter 5. And really it's all over Hebrews, but I want to read Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Hebrews 5 verse 1 says, Every high priest is selected from among the people and appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So by the way, that's, that's Melchizedek, not Melchizedek. The C-H in there makes a cut sound in Hebrew, um, but it really doesn't matter. Say it however you want to say it. Um, but if you read through Hebrews, you'll find that this Melchizedek guy is talked about in like three chapters, like over and over again. We get him here in chapter 5, he's in chapter 6, 
Um, and then a big section in chapter 7. And so, obviously, Hebrews is telling us that there's a fingerprint here with this Melchizedek guy. And look, I'll be honest, the book of Hebrews is a very, very difficult book of the Bible to read and understand. And that's coming from somebody who studies it every single day. So don't feel nervous if you read through Hebrews and you're scratching your head and pulling your hair out because it's very difficult. It's an intimidating book because there's so many references to the Old Testament and Old Testament scriptures and, and history and He's talking about rituals that we don't understand, and so there's so many connections being made that it can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, it's honestly one of those books of the Bible that you can't just sit down and read cover to cover. You've got to take it verse by verse and just study it. Um, and so this Melchizedek thing is no exception. You can't just read it and then just move on. You've got to dive into it and really understand what this Melchizedek thing is all about. So Melchizedek was a priest. He's mentioned in Genesis. Um, and, and like I said before, Hebrews talks about Melchizedek for like three chapters straight. But when we go back to the Old Testament and we try to find out more about him, we, think, we find out he's mentioned in like two verses. He's like mentioned like one time in Genesis and then one time in the Psalms. And you're thinking, you're, so you're scratching your head going... How is Hebrews able to get so much out of these two little verses? What is he talking about? So as we kind of unpack this, the first thing I want us to notice here is what we're seeing quoted here is not the Melchizedek account from Genesis. In verse 6 where he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's actually quoting uh, Psalm 110. Okay? So... I figured we could go back and read Psalm 110 and see what that's all about and try to unpack that, and then we can get back to Genesis. So uh, I'd love if you would turn your Bible to Psalm chapter 110, Psalm number 110. And I just want to read the whole thing here. Psalm 110. Uh, I'll read the inscription on top. I think those are important, even if they're not part of the original scripture. It says, Psalm 110, a psalm of David, or of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make enemies a footstool of your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing in the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young man will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush the kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. And so as we, as we kind of read this psalm, as we meditate on it, as we digest it, I want to ask a question. Who here has ever heard the idea of context when we're reading the Bible? Show of hands. Who's ever said, it's important to read the Bible in context? 
right? We kind of we, we kind of understand that. You can't just somebody quick give me a real quick explanation. What what does it mean to read the Bible in context? Right, how it was intended at the time and place it was written. Right? Um, according to who? The, 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 the person or the people who originally read it? Or the person who originally wrote it? Right? The, the, not the spirit person, but the, you know, David. David sat down and wrote this. And so we got to think back in King David's day and King David's audience. So... I kind of just gave away the answer to this next question, but whose context do we need to read Psalm 110 in if we're reading it in context? David, right, right. So David was writing this psalm. It, most psalms were written as a song. It was probably meant to be sung in some way at some sort of royal procession in the temple courts. And he wrote this song about the one who would take over on the throne for him after he was gone. That's why he says, the Lord will extend your scepter from Zion. You will rule over uh, Jerusalem. You will vanquish the enemies of Israel. <coughs> now, I want to say something a little bit provocative here. When David wrote this, when the Spirit guided him to write these words on a page about the one who would sit on the throne after him. David had the wrong person in his mind. Now God knew, when God inspired David to write it, God knew exactly who this eternal king would be in the line of David, but David was not thinking about that. See, the Spirit, God can work with us. God can work with David, even though David had the wrong idea. God had his fingerprints all over this story, all through. So even though David had no idea that this was going to be about the Messiah, about Jesus, God knew. Right? Do you think he had any idea that he was writing this song about somebody who would come a thousand years later? I would venture to say no. And so even though he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was wrong about his intentions, but the Spirit was right to guide him to write it that way. So we have this idea from David's time, from David's context, that there would be um, an heir to the throne, right? Somebody would take over after David. He would be king. He would be a descendant of David. And so we get that spelled out for us in 2 Samuel 7. And that's kind of where all of this psalm is, is pulling from, is this promise that God makes in 2 Samuel 7. So I'd love now, as we work our way back through, if you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read through to verse 7 here. 2 Samuel 7 says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, 
Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I really want to drive home the importance of this passage right here. In my opinion, this is the hinge point of the entire Old Testament. Right? Every good story, every good movie has a point at some point where one of the main characters has a very important decision to make. And what choice they make determines the entire outline of the story, the entire plot. Well, this is that point in the Old Testament. This is the point where David has a very important decision to make. See, the nation of Israel has finally gotten to the point where they're, they're receiving a little bit of rest from their enemies. They have a, a, a king. They're kind of settled. They finally have a king who's a man after God's own heart. And the king, living in his big fancy palace, says, You know what? I don't, I'm living in this big palace, and there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is out in this tent outside, and the weather and the, the rain and all of this stuff. David says, That just doesn't seem right. I want to do something about that. I want to build God a temple. But what does God say? He says, I don't want a temple. God says, for the last 500 years, I've been living in a tent for a reason. He's basically, he's telling David, look, if I would have wanted a temple, I would have told Moses to build me one in the first place. God says, I like living in a tent, in a tabernacle. You know why? Because a tent moves. God says, that's the whole point, because I'm the kind of God who travels with you. I'm the kind of God who goes with you to a special place. Not the kind of God who stays in the temple and makes you come to me. I'm the kind of God that packs up and travels with you. Which, isn't that kind of how we treat God sometimes? We get this idea that God exists within the walls of the church, or he exists within a Bible study building, or within a certain framework. But God, from the very beginning, has always been the kind of God who comes with us. Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered, that's where he is. And then, as we read on here in 2 Samuel, we get a little more uh, detail about David's request. Picking back up in verse 8. Oh, wrong chapter. There we go. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did in the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house 
for you. Okay, so God doubles down here. He says, not only do I not want a house, he says, but I'm going to build a house for you. I will establish Jerusalem as your resting place, not the other way around. And then he says here in verse 12, he says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for Raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And just so you know, that word offspring does not mean son, it means descendant. So it could be a son, it could be a grandson, it could be a great-great-grandson, but he doesn't use the word son, he says offspring, right? A descendant. And this is, this is the hinge point that I was talking about. This is the decision point. Because God says, one of your descendants will be the one who builds a temple for me. And I will establish his kingdom forever. And in my opinion, this is the critical error that David makes. This is the point in which the entire Old Testament story starts to go downhill. And it's a slow reveal. As you're reading it, you might not kind of catch on that this was the hinge point. But soon enough, as you're reading through uh, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you start to think to yourself, uh-oh, something in the history of this people has gone very wrong. And you start to see all of the, the bad choices and the destruction. You think to yourself, this story is on a train to destruction. And the mistake that David makes is assuming that God is talking about Solomon as the one who will rule on the throne forever. And what I find interesting is when you actually read about what David says to Solomon when he commends Solomon to build the temple, it doesn't actually line up with what God originally says to David. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Go on over to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Keep that last bit in mind about what God told David told David, and then go to 1 Chronicles 22, starting in verse 6. It says, Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed too much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon, and I will grant Israel peace and quiet during his reign. He is the one who will build a house for my name. He will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Wait a minute. God didn't say any of that stuff, did he? I mean, David told Solomon that God said all that stuff, but when we go back and read what God actually said to Nathan, who told the story to David, God didn't say any of that stuff. God never mentioned anything about bloodshed or wars in uh, 2 Samuel, 
He never said your son will do it. He said your descendant, your offspring will build it. God never even mentioned Solomon, yet in 1 Chronicles, David says, yes, the Lord told me that Solomon will be his name, but God never said any of that. And so, going back to my question about the context, we have to be a little bit careful when we read the Old Testament in context because sometimes the context of David will give us a really wonky idea. We have to read it in Christ's context, in the context of Jesus first. So when we, when we think about Psalm 110, right, we get this confusing picture because we get this idea if, if from David's context, if Solomon was going to be this great king who ruled Israel and lived on the throne forever and and Solomon was going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek? I mean, if we, if we read the story in that context, we might get the wrong idea that uh, God maybe doesn't keep his promises, right? That's what idea we might get. So, but, but David was right in one sense. He was right that someone would live on his throne forever, that someone would be the one who would vanquish the enemy. He was just way off base as to who exactly it was. But he did say that whoever it was would be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He said he would mirror Melchizedek somehow. And so with all of that, I want us to finally get to the scripture we're actually supposed to be reading today, and that's Genesis chapter 14. Thank you for going on that journey with me. I feel like it's important. So I'm going to read in Genesis 14, starting in verse 1. We read this here. It says, at the time... Oh my goodness, I hate Hebrew names. you got to say it with confidence. So if I mess it up, you know how you're supposed to pronounce it? Just keep it to yourself. At the time when Aramphel was king of Shinar, Ariok king of Alasar... Kerdalasar, the king of Elam, and the title king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidon, that is, the Dead Sea Valley. For twelve years they had been subject to Kerdolamar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kerdolomar and the kings allied with him and went out and defeated him, defeated the Rephites in the Ashtaroth Karnaim and the Zeusites in Ham, and the Emites in the Shava Kuriatham, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazizan Tamar. I should have practiced that before today, but I didn't. Okay, so just for reference, because that can get a little bit difficult, I want to put up a map. Oh, that's hard to see up there. We need bigger screens. Uh, we'll do our best here. So what, what basically what just happens there is these, uh, let's go over here. These kings come from way over here, uh, way over into what's like modern-day Iran, okay? And they all kind of join forces, and they go all the way over down into Israel, to fight this battle against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So uh, just for reference, I want you to see that map because that's not a that's not a day trip, right? That's a big military endeavor. That's that's a long thing. You don't make those kinds of trips unless you're certain that you can win. Okay, so these four powerful kings come over and they're going to attack here the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, the three other places there. I, I already forgot them. That's all right. Um, we'll pick back up in verse eight. It says, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboiim, and the king of Bela, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Kerdolomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Aramphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's, Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aethnar, all of whom who were allied with Abram. All right, we need another map. So over here you can see that's the Dead Sea. Uh, the, all of the kingdoms, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, Zebulun, they all are right there just south of the Dead Sea, and they all join forces and they have this big battle with the other four kings right in that part right below the sea, right there. There's their sea right just to the south of the sea. And there's tar pits everywhere. And they get stuck in the tar. And I, I love that it's a beautiful picture. Maybe not beautiful. It's a very fitting picture. What, is, what was Sodom and Gomorrah known for? Their sin, right? They were known for their, for their sin and, and not going uh, with the will of God. And so it's, it's no coincidence that we have this mirror, this picture of them getting, being unable to defeat the enemy because they got stuck in their own carpets. And I think we can see a spiritual aspect of it to us today. We cannot fight our enemies if we keep getting stuck in the tar pits of our own sin. Right? I think that's an important lesson we can learn. They literally got stuck in tar pits, but there's also this aspect of they got stuck in their own sin. And they were not able to fight their own battles. I'm going to read verse 14 here. 14.14 says, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in the household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Okay, so, so basically, this whole battle happens. They take Lot. One of the guys escapes. He goes and tells Abram, hey, these kings came and they got Lot. And, and so Abram chases them from the Dead Sea. Now we're zoomed out and chases them all the way up to the top of the screen there, uh, north of Dan, and defeats them with 318 men. Now remember, I told you that this was a big military victory. Right? They were going to come in and they were just going to wipe clean. You don't make that big long trip unless you've got the goods to deliver. And so the fact that Abram was able to 
defeat them with 300 guys is a big deal, right? It meant that the Lord was with him. This was a divinely inspired encounter. And then we finally, on his way back, he gets Lot, he defeats the four kings, and he's on his way back, and we get the moment we've been waiting for, because we've been reading Hebrews, and we've read Psalms, and we keep hearing about this Melchizedek guy, and we want to know all about him, so here's what we get. Verse 17 through 20. It says, After Abram returned from defeating Kirdelorvar, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then that's it. That's, that's like those two parts are the only times that Melchizedek is ever mentioned ever again in the Old Testament. The psalm and that little bit right there. So, this battle happens, and then some random priest shows up out of nowhere, and then says a blessing, and then he's gone, right? So, what are we supposed to make of all that? Well, part of the reason I wanted to show you all of those maps up there is I wanted you guys to have a picture in your head of where all of this is taking place. Um, Salem the place where Melchizedek is from is the ancient city upon which the modern-day city of Jerusalem was built. So Salem, where Melchizedek is from, was the original Jerusalem. It's even in the name right there, right? Jerusalem, they named it after Salem. And that word Salem means peace. And we actually hear about that in Hebrews 7. Um, so he's in a city called Peace. Jerusalem means city of peace. Jerusalem. And Melchizedek, we also find in Hebrew 7, the word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Zedek means righteousness. And so we have this guy, he's the king of peace, the king of righteousness, and he meets Abram where? It says in the valley of Shava, the king's valley. So, in the city of Jerusalem, on the southeast side, so Jerusalem kind of sits up on a hill. Um, today, you know, and back in Jesus' day, there was walls around it. It's up on a hill, and then there's a little valley, and then there's some mountains off to the southeast. And the valley right there, that's the valley of Shava, right? So there's Jerusalem on a hill, valley, and then some mountains. That's the valley of Shava. And the mountains on the other side that make the valley, today we would call them the Mount of Olives. Okay? And so right at the base of the Mount of Olives, there's this little place that today we call the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? You guys kind of picturing where we're at now, where Abram is meeting this king of peace? And so when we put that all together, we get the king of righteousness, the king of peace. That ring any bells yet? Who's the prince of peace? The king of righteousness, the king of peace, 
meets Abram at the Garden of Gethsemane, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and he says a blessing. And he brings bread and wine. That was in verse, hopefully I still read it. Verse, yeah, 15, like, thank you, thank you. Yeah, he brings bread and wine and says a blessing in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. The same God who several thousand years later would deliver the final enemy into the hands of Jesus. The same Jesus God promised to Abraham when he said, surely I will bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. He says, your descendant will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And I know we did all of that work and all of that Bible digging and, and peeling back and trying to understand this, But the purpose of all of that work and all that study and, and peeling back scriptures and trying to understand things is when we go from, from, from King David, the Psalms, to King Solomon, back to Genesis, we learn what? that we, Something we already know, right? That Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King. So what? What's the point of all that? Well, number one, I want you guys to understand and really appreciate the fact that God is behind every single word in this book. It's not something you just read through once a year on your read the Bible in a year plan and you get to like March and you get around to like, I don't know, Ecclesiastes and then you're like, oh, I'm tired of this. It's something we need to spend every day in. Because there's so much here that God is trying to tell us, he's trying to show us, but the only way we're going to get it is if we read it and we read it again and again and again, we start to see all these connections that he's made for us. Because this thing was written by like, what is it, like 40 different human beings sat down and actually put pen to parchment. And you can't tell me that this story all just lines up perfectly without there being a God behind all of it. Because you can't get 40 different people in the same room together to agree on one thing, let alone 40 different people across a couple thousand years' time span. And so our job is to spend time in the Word. And I know... As we're moving into the holidays, things can get busy. We've got family coming over, but you cannot neglect the time you spend in God's Word because there's so much, so much in it that you can miss. And so that's the number one thing I wanted to encourage you all is to be able to spend time in God's Word and really just study it every single day. And I want us to take away the idea that God never, when God sent Melchizedek to Abraham, he never intended that to turn into an earthly king and an earthly temple and an earthly kingdom, right? From that divine appointment, it had nothing to do with Solomon, it had nothing to do with the temple and all of this earthly stuff, and nothing to do with the building that we're sitting in right now. We're talking about eternal stuff, we're talking about heart stuff. 
Because we have a God who will travel with us. And so I don't know if that inspires you or if it scares you, but I, I just want to, I don't know today what your feelings like, but I just, I ask you as we go into the holidays to spend time in God's Word, not just on Sunday, not just on Tuesday night Bible studies. Every single day, I want you to read the story of our King, our eternal King, and submit to His will because He's the ruler over everything. And don't just assume you think you know what it means, like David did, right? David assumed he knew what the word of the Lord meant. Don't just assume that. Read it. Let the spirit that dwells within you guide your time in his word. And so, I want to do something a little bit different again today. You know, I say a little bit different a lot. <laughs> I'm starting to get the feeling that maybe a little bit different is actually the normal but that's all right. For our prayer today, um, I want us to recognize the kingship of Jesus and the, the importance of submitting to his will. And so um, for our prayer, I want you all to, I would invite you all to stand with me. And I want us to pray the way Jesus told us to pray. Um, but before we start, I don't, I don't know what version of the Lord's Prayer y'all grew up on. But when we get to the part where it says, forgive us our that's, okay, good, good. I was, I was hoping there's going to be like a trespasses in there somewhere, but uh, the, the Bible says debt, so we're going to say debts. Um, will you go to God's prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 